It's such a joy to be with you again this morning to be able to worship our God together. It's been so encouraging for myself and my family, and I hope that it has been for you as well. I'm thankful for all the men who have participated in leading us in this worship and for you following their leadership in that and that we had worship that was decent and in order according to God's prescription. And I know that it was glorifying to him because of that. I'm so thankful for the thoughtful prayers that Carl and others offered up for us to follow and amen to and for James picking out those songs. I agree with him. That last song is such a touching song that gives us so much hope and joy about what it will be like in heaven with God for eternity. And we're thankful for that. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know how thankful we are for your presence. And we'd love to see you back at any other opportunity that you might have. We were in the middle of a study of inspiration and providence. Took a break last week and I want to begin that again this week. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, Paul tells Timothy by inspiration that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's therefore profitable. We noted two words there. Scripture means writing. It is from the Greek word graphe, and therefore it is Holy Scripture because of the fact that this writing is given by inspiration of God. Theonoustos, it is God-breathed. And we demonstrated in our three lessons on inspiration that it bears the marks of God. It is infallible. It tells of future events with flawless detail. It speaks about things that we could not have possibly known. And God knew because He created and He foresees things happening in history. And He wills them to happen. And and we see many things throughout the Scripture that shows that it is, in fact, writing of God. But He used men to write it. But what we also stressed is that Scripture itself and its very existence, really, but also its claim, is to be God's method of communicating throughout time His will for mankind to be saved and redeemed from their sins, therefore to be with Him for eternity. If we want to please God and we want to know why we exist, we want to know what the one who created us wants us to do, how He wants us to live. Writing is how God determined to communicate that. Specific writing, what we hold within our hands, the Old and New Testaments, but writing. In Romans 15 and verse 4, it talks about that writing is for our learning. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, it talks about how the things that happened before were for an example and written for our admonition. So that historical and inspired message. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, Paul mentions his word and epistle, speaking of his audible verbal teaching, but also his teaching by the written word. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, Paul's writings are referred to there by Peter as Scripture on the same plane as the prophetic Word of God. The writing of the Scripture, the Old Testament, 2 Timothy 3.15, makes us wise for salvation. And John 20 talks about the whole purpose of the revelation of John's Gospel and the seven major miracles that he records as Jesus performing were written so that we can believe. We don't have to see them actually happen. They were written and verified through this Word. And so given the importance of the written will of God, there's a legitimate question that we've been seeking to investigate and think about and answer 
And that pertains to whether or not this is inspired. And that was our first three lessons. I think that there's ample proof that it is God's will. It's inspired of God. But also, okay, God inspired His Word and wrote it down 2,000 years ago. And even thousands of years before that, when we're talking about the Old Testament, is it reliable? Do we have what was originally written? And we speak about it as regarding the integrity of the Word of God. But not only that, as we think about the integrity of all the Word of God, whether it is true to what God willed and intended to begin with, but is it whole? When we think about the canon, that's what we're going to talk about. And next lesson, we'll talk more specifically about what we mean by the canonicity of Scripture. It's essentially a reference to official books that are inspired, that these are the books of God, no more, no less. And it has reference to later on a list that is compiled from Matthew to Revelation, the canon of of the New Testament. Is that truly all there is? Were there books that were left out? Or are there books that are not legitimate, that are left in? And have we been duped to believe in books that only men have written and not God has written? And so what about the revelation and, and the writing down, the transmission from generation to generation of God's will? Because God intended to tell us about Him and His will through writing, used men to do that. Is it something we can trust? And so we look at inspiration coming along with the idea that God's Word is represented in these pages. These are God's words. He chose the very words and message that they convey. But then providence really has to do with what we're going to consider for the rest of these lessons that God is both an omnipotent and omniscient being, having the greatest uh, thoughts of our interests in His mind, the eternal welfare of mankind, that He was able to protect, not just reveal, but protect what He has been revealing through the written Word, not just for a week or two weeks or a month or a few years, but all the way up to this point in time, thousands and thousands of years, that God, because He's all-powerful, because He's all-wise, He's in control, and we need this to be saved, preserved it for us. By faith, we believe that. And it's only logical. We read from Isaiah 55. I appreciate Thomas preparing our minds with that. And we studied from this context this morning. Verse 10 says, As the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. What's the gospel for? For whoever believes... It will give salvation. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Not just Jew and Greek, but first century people and 15th century people and 21st century people. Everyone. And so if that's the case, and God sent forth His written word to perform the salvation of souls, it will accomplish that, which means... It will be preserved. It will not be jeopardized through human will or through negligence or through natural occurrences. It will be preserved because it was God's intention that it would be preserved. Brethren, if we have faith 
we have enough to accept that truth. If we can believe that God in six days created everything, that He shook Mount Sinai and gave His will to the Jews, that the Word became flesh and verified Himself to be the Son of God through miracles, through His resurrection, appearing to over 500 people at once, who went and told the world about what they had witnessed. If we believe that, we can believe that God protected His Word. There's so much that God has done that showed such. But if Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, and a host of other passages that we'll consider even this morning, is if that's true, then there is no room for corruption of the Bible. You know, you might have had a friend tell you that. Well... I think the Bible is a good book, but it's been corrupted, so we've got to be careful about acting like it is the final rule of salvation. There are other religions that have been established on the false assumption that God's Word was corrupted, that we can't trust it to be truly God's Word. It leaves no room for missing books. Is this, is this all that God wants us to have? I believe it is. If, if there's something else, then God failed. He's he's allowed the whole creation through thousands of years to be deceived. It allows no room for false books to be here and a part of this. I don't have to doubt about what we have here within our Bibles. If God is who He says He is, then His Word must be what He says it is, and it must be preserved to this day. There's plenty of evidence for this internally and externally. And so we want to consider the idea of providence because that's really what this is is all about. The the fact that God has inspired men to write down these words, but it's been thousands of years since they've done it. it. It requires God having an ability to use other men to copy down what He originally inspired from generation to generation to where it can be compiled in a volume like today and and we can trust that it has not been tainted, that it has not been neglected. We don't have to wonder if we've got it all or if we've got too much. That's providence, God's protection of it. It's from a Latin word, providentia, from providere, which means to foresee or to attend to. It's from pro, before, and videre, to see. And so it means to to see before. New Oxford American Dictionary defines it as the protective care of God or of nature. Of course, that's not what we believe. The the protective care of God as a spiritual power, timely preparation for future eventualities. It's primarily, as we think of it, the protective care of God. But that last definition is important too. Timely preparation for future eventualities. You'd be interested to know that providence is actually only seen in the New Testament and the Bible one time. It's translated in the King James Version, the American Standard Version, and the New American Standard Bible. In Acts 24 and verse 2, when Tertullus is bringing a false accusation against Paul before Felix, the governor, and he kind of butters him up a little bit. And he says, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. That foresight in the New King James Version translated providence in other translations. That's the only time that you see it, that word at least. It's it's the Greek word pranoia. It's actually in the New Testament twice, but it's translated providence once. It's also found in Romans 13 and verse 14. Make no provision for the flesh. It's the same word. Well, Arden Gingrich gives this definition. 
uh, after Strong gives this definition of, of thought, provident care, or supply, Artengier says it's thoughtful planning to meet a need, forethought, foresight, providence. And so when it's used in Romans 13, 4, make no provision for the flesh, he's saying that you don't take forethought into making sure you can, by those decisions and actions, be involved in sinful activity. But the very irony in that is that we do that too often. And he's telling us, don't provide for the flesh. We think, how did we get in sin over here? It's because of all of these thoughts and actions you took back here. You, you gave forethought for that. You gave preparation for that. He's saying, don't do that in Romans 13, 14. He's, he's telling Tertullus, that is Felix, that you know because you've been careful about our future and our, our, how you govern our society and you've protected us, you've given us fruitfulness and plentifulness, you've, you've made sure that we're okay. Well, that's the kind of idea with providence. God foresees needs and creates in such a way that those needs can be fulfilled by Him throughout time. He is providing for us. There's another word that's similar to it, pronoyo, and it means to consider in advance, to look out for beforehand, actively by way of and by the middle voice, by way of circumspection for oneself. So have regard for good things in the sight of men, Romans 12, 17. Providing honorable things, 2 Corinthians 8, 21. And 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, he is worse than a heathen. He is using a similar word. Provide. When we go to work, we are having a foresight and forethought, at least, rather, of what our family needs. And we're taking action to provide for them. This idea of providence. In his uh, very well-known and helpful book on prayer and providence, Homer Haley gives this definition, and it really is too good to improve upon. When applied to God, the word means his foresight and forethought in creating the universe whereby he could be in control and carry out his purpose to its ultimate consummation. I know there's a lot there. But God didn't just willy-nilly create. He had forethought. So he was in eternity in his mind, had this plan of exactly how to make the universe in such a way that as he could see man in free will sinning, he could use his created laws and materials and people and organisms and and everything that he would do. He set it in such a way that he could work through it. He certainly could suspend natural law. That's what is in miracles, but not just he can only work through a miracle. You know, there's some Christians even that can't comprehend that everything God does is not a miracle. A miracle is when the laws of nature are suspended. A supernatural being can work within laws that he created, and that's what providence is. God created the universe in such a way that he could act in it. And what this presupposes is, one, he is the creator But two, he has an active role in the government of creation. And this is what we read in Colossians 1 and verse 16. By him all things were created, specifically speaking of Christ, the preeminent one. All things created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That idea of in him all things consist is not just that he made all things exist, But in Him we live and move and have our being. We draw our very breath because of God's government, because of His providence. He he has set things up in such a way 
that would perpetuate by His government. And when He wants something to happen, when He needs something to take place in order for His ultimate will of salvation, for instance, to happen and be successful, He can, without suspending natural law, without foregoing man's liberty to choose free will, and and without contradicting that, use people and things and events and places and circumstances and phenomena to carry out His will. And that's very impressive. God is in complete control, and we read that throughout Scripture. Hebrews 1 and verses 2 through 3 speaks about how He upholds all things by the word of His power. In Psalm 33 and verse 6, we read about the creation and the method. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. In verse 9, He spoke and it was done and commanded and stood fast. When, I, when I'm speaking, when you're hearing words, when you're giving words to other people, they are vehicles of thought. And so I've got a concept in my mind that I need to share with you. And the way that that happens, whether writing or or verbal communication, is by words. And so everything we see, we we wonder why the the mathematical existence is here in the universe and and how intricate and fine-tuned it is. It's because that was in God's mind, and He communicated it into existence. It materialized based on... His will. Words are the vehicle of thought. And so when we talk about the laws of nature, remember Isaac Newton? He's sitting there and he sees an apple fall and we say he discovered gravity. And then he discovered other laws. Those are laws that we discover. We don't invent. Someone else invented them. That's this idea. God spoke them into existence. So all of the natural laws are laws that have been authored by God. But they weren't just random. He authored them in such a way to be able to use them to further His will. And that includes mankind. He can use the laws of nature. He can suspend them, certainly. But He can work through them without doing anything unnatural. But even mankind is a part of that creation. And He created as an expression of His will. It was with intent. It was with thought. It was with purpose, and mankind's a part of that purpose. But the greater purpose to redeem mankind, He can even use mankind to help that be carried out. Also in his book on prayer and providence, Haley says that His sovereignty over these, mankind, is exercised by moral suasion through moral government. And so man was created with free will. And so what God can't do is use them as mere puppets and against their will. And He's making them do things that they're not deciding to do and so on and so forth. What He does in using man is through moral suasion. That is, He persuades men through things that happen, whether events directly to them or widespread events or something they experience in nature. And so we make decisions all the time. We, we act and then we react and something happens and we make a decision based on that. God in His infinite wisdom and in control can use my decisions I've made myself to carry out some of His purposes. And this is why, as we studied last Sunday, an example of the Assyrian nation, God was using them as a tool in His hand to punish His people and all other wicked nations, but they did not mean it so. They didn't think God was using them. They thought they were doing it by themselves. And the fact is, is they were making their decisions, 
In fact, they were going beyond what God wanted them to do. And they were being torturous. They were being hateful. They were doing so many bad things. And God punished them for doing that. So through their free will, God used them to carry out His purposes. And this, the reason I'm lingering on that point is that that's how God providentially preserved His Word. Why do you think we have... Why, and, and we'll talk about some statistics in later lessons. But why do you think the Bible has more documentary evidence and, and, and more transcripts and manuscripts than any other ancient writing by a long shot? It's because... It's the word of salvation and men knew it. That's something worth copying down over and over and over again. And not just kind of in a lax approach, you know, casually paraphrasing, but word for word to the degree that we have so much documentation that we put it all together and we see the word of God. Like no other ancient document. It's because men knew it was the word of salvation. And God used that to persuade them, to push them through their own free will. And He guided that and watched over it throughout time. You know, creation itself has a purpose to declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 and verse 1, But man is the crown and glory made in the image of God, is made upright to fear God and keep the commandments. And what we see is that we've fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 And so I want us to notice in Ephesians chapter 3 what we read about. Remember that creation from the Word of God is an expression of His mind that was in eternity by words. And that's what we see when the fall of man occurred. God set in motion a plan He had in eternity. And it came together in a written word. In Ecclesiastes chapter, rather Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, I want us to notice in verse 3, the Apostle Paul said, By revelation he made known to be the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages has not been made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. He wrote it down. That's, he's saying God is revealing a mystery. It was a mystery because it was in eternity in the mind of God. In fact, he'd go on to say in verse 9, that He makes known what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's telling us that before God even spoke into existence, in His mind was a plan to redeem man if they used their free will to sin against Him. And from eternity, he has that in his mind. And he waits till the first century to fully reveal it. And how does he reveal it? Paul says, I have written this down so that you can understand that mystery of salvation. To the extent that notice in chapter 2 and verse 7, a phrase he uses to explain the purpose of this salvation that they spoke and wrote down and people obeyed, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We read in Isaiah 55 at the very last verse in our first sermon this morning about how it stands for a name for God. It shows people throughout the ages, Paul is saying, how gracious and merciful and loving and how much power to save that He wields. And what Paul is telling us as an inspired man of God 
is that one of the things that plays a part in that perpetuation of God's glory, when men see the salvation of souls, they glorify God and they recognize His great and wondrous and gracious name, is through the written word. It's through the written word. Just as God had in His mind a universe, a cosmos of order and life, and He spoke it into existence, God had in His mind an ordered and flawless, victorious plan of salvation, and He spoke it forth and used men to write it down infallibly. And that was His way to save man. The written word. If that's true, and it is, then the perpetuation of the written word under the provident care of God, even using flawed men, imperfect men, to copy it down, who are a part of that creation that He has the power to use to further His purposes, that is completely within the realm of not just possibility, but likelihood It's truth and reason. As Paul said, I speak the words of truth and reason. People will tell you you're crazy for believing that this word through 2,000 years was never corrupted. That it remains the original inspired word of God. People will tell you you're insane. It's foolish to believe that. Yet they believe we have Homer's Odyssey. They believe we have the works of Shakespeare. They believe we have the history of Josephus, who wrote in the first century. And all of those pale in comparison to the extant, that is, in existence, documents from which they're translated. You realize that? It is beyond me why people fail to believe that God has enough power to protect words without corruption for as long as He has and for as much time as He still gives us. That is like the... It's impressive, but it's like one of the smallest things in the grand scheme of what we've seen Him done, what we've seen Him do, raise the dead, and we don't believe that He can preserve His Word. That's what we're talking about here. He inspired it so we can be saved. Wouldn't you believe that He can protect it? And so what we begin to understand is there's an obvious correlation between divine revelation, God revealing His will to us, and divine providence. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, that Scripture is to make us wise unto salvation. We talked about from John 20 that these things are written that you may believe. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, these things that Paul is writing are referred to as, as Scripture. It's God's Word. It's God's will. And if that's, that's all true, God wanted us to know His will to be saved. And the way that He determined for us to know His will to be saved is to write it down in His book on a review of the New Versions. Foy E. Wallace, a very well-known gospel preacher from times ago who was very instrumental, a great force in our combating of premillennialism when it was in its freshness and coming into the churches of he, he was very instrumental in putting that to bed. 
he wrote that if God is using a written word to communicate his will to mankind, he says that involves some conclusions from which necessary antecedent inferences and deductions must be drawn. Essentially, all he's saying is if that's true, if God's will inspired and written down is how he chose to communicate his will, even to us today, not just in the first century, but to us today, and that we can be saved by it because it is the true word of God. There are things that must have taken place before that. If, if that's true, it's got to be that this is true over here. He gives four conclusions that must be drawn. First, that God the creator would communicate by revelation with his creature. He would, he would reveal His will to us. Second, that the record of the stages and the development of this revelation be made. In other words, He doesn't just reveal it to the fathers in the patriarchal dispensation and nothing is ever written down. He, he doesn't just reveal to Moses audibly His will, but it's not recorded. He, he wants us to know. He wants a record. And so that he would reveal his will and that a record of the stages of this development of revelation as it's revealed in piecemeal. Now we have it all be made third, that this record of revelation was made by its original inspired recipients consisting of a collection of the Holy Scriptures. That is the record. In 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about that which is in part and then that which is perfect has come. That which is in part will be done away. And what Foye Wallace is observing is that God wants to reveal his will. He wants that will to be recorded, and He wants that full will to be recorded. And what inspired men have done, God through, him, through them, have infallibly written it down. And so His full real will has been revealed. And then fourthly, that the means and the methods for the record of revelation were providentially provided. Why in the world would God decide, I need to reveal my will to man, I want them to write it down. I want them to write it all down. It's complete, the Holy Scriptures. But I'm not going to worry about it standing the test of time. Where people 2,000 years from now, they don't even know if they have my will. It makes sense, does it? So these are logical conclusions that are drawn from these Scriptures that God desired man to be saved through the communication of His will in a written message. God's going to protect it. He's going to make sure it's not corrupted. If there was not a, a way that the Jewish nation could truly thwart God's will and destroy the Christ, then there's not a way that they could destroy His Word. we got to be consistent. And so there's a correlation between divine revelation. If God is going to reveal and He's going to write it down, then there's got to be the protection of it by His provident care. And there is that throughout the entirety of Scripture in Psalm 119 and verse 89, for example, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It's eternal. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, as we talked about, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Matthew 24 and verse 35. I know we're going through this. Have to. But you can get my outline from me later. Heaven and earth, Jesus says, will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, this is a really powerful one. All these things, speaking of the Israelites in the Old Testament, all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. You realize when he says, for those upon whom the ends of the age have come, he's talking about me and you. Not just talking about the Corinthians. 
The ends of the age is the gospel dispensation. And he's telling us that what we read in the Old Testament was recorded for them in the New Testament and for us 2,000 years after the New Testament was established. I mean, thousands of thousands of years this reaches back. And God's saying, I, I had it written down to be preserved for everyone in the Christian dispensation until Christ comes again. 1 Peter 1 and verse 24 all flesh is as grass, quoting from Isaiah, the glory of man is a flower of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And notice, while that's true of the prophetic utterings of Old Testament, now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. The gospel will never fade away. 1 Corinthians 13 in verse 9, I just alluded to it. We know in part and prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, complete has come, and knowing and prophesying, it's about the revelation of God's will. He's talking about the end piecemeal revelation of God's will. But when it's full, then these spiritual gifts, that which is in part, will be done away with. He's talking about a time when it would be completed. Jude verse 3 talks about that as well. It has been once for all delivered to the saints. Second Peter 1 and verse 3. All things pertain to life and godliness have been given through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Here's the only question left to answer. Based on all of those claims that God's will is that His Word be revealed and protected to last as long as He wants it to last throughout time until He comes again. The only question left is can He do what He said He would do? And did He do it? And Numbers 23 and verse 19 God said, God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make good? Is he going to be able to accomplish this? He's telling us he can. Psalm 77 and in verse 8. Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? He promised to preserve his word. Has he failed? And in Hebrews 6 and verse 13, he talks to, about Abraham, that he made a promise to Abraham. He could swore by no one greater, so he swore by himself. And it says, men indeed swear by the greater and oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, by, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. That applies to his word, brethren. His promise is certain. Can He do what He said He'd do? If you believe in God, you've got to believe in that. If you believe in God, you've got to believe that He could preserve it and protect it. And it could be uncorrupted. It is so logical to believe that if God can do everything we see that He has done in creation and read about Him doing in the divine record, that He could preserve His Word for us, to read and have confidence in. And so there's a great deal of providence that plays a role in this. And what we see, though, and we're going to talk about the integrity of the manuscripts and what we have compiled for us. We're going to talk about the canonicity and, and coming lessons and whether or not we have the true Word of God from Matthew to Revelation, from Genesis to Malachi for, for that for that matter. Do, do we have it all? But I think that before we get to B 
speaking about some of those facts that are very, very helpful and reassuring and help us to grow in our appreciation for God and His will, we got to understand the birth of Scripture first. Remember back earlier we talked about the providence of God using mankind and that He doesn't suspend their free will. He doesn't... He doesn't use man in a way that contradicts their free will. When, when he hardened Pharaoh's heart, he did not make Pharaoh do anything that Pharaoh did not choose to do. He, he used Pharaoh's character, gave him commands so that Pharaoh made his own decision. And, and so when men copied down the word of God and they, they took through that painstaking process, they were very careful in doing what they wanted to do or, or what they thought needed to happen. They, they copied it as carefully as they could. They gave themselves environments that, that lended to that ability and such. When they were doing that, God was working through them, but He was using their free will. And it's because these men knew where this word came from. That's important. We can't appreciate any of the other stuff until we appreciate the birth of Scripture and why people ever in their right minds gave it the kind of respect and credence that we still give it today. Why would we ever? What evidence do we have? And so the biblical and therefore most important standard of determining the authenticity of Scripture, of a message, it lies with a twofold supply of God. Revelation, only God did it, only God could do it, and confirmation. We're talking about God telling us His will, and I've slowed down a little because I'm not going to speed through the rest of this. But this is a preface into our next lesson. God spoke His will, and He made sure that even though we should see His will and understand His will and apply it knowing the truth as it is, he went above and beyond like with Abraham to confirm it in a way that is irrefutable. And this is what precedes the provident care of that message. Why, why were men so intent on preserving this message and copying it down? Why did they make sure they copied it exactly to the extent that sometimes in their fallibility, they would be copying down a message and they would think that the scribe before them left something out. And they were so concerned with the will of God being preserved that they added in a part that they have read in another part of Scripture. We're going to see some of that eventually. We talk, call those textual variants. And they're not contradictory. You can map those out and see the most ancient documents and the most of them with that particular phrase and see that this is what was originally written down by these inspired men. But th they had so much care for this. Throughout all revelation, there is the corresponding confirmation. When, when Paul sent a letter to Corinth, he sent that letter to Corinth after he was there in person performing miracles. That's key. He'd say in 2 Corinthians 12 that the signs of an apostle were among you. We're not talking about a random person throwing out a letter and people being like, oh, it's probably important, so we'll all copy it down. They knew that these men 
had performed these miracles and the earliest copies were made by people that witnessed miracles and by people that probably even performed miracles themselves by those gifts of the Spirit we read about in 1 Corinthians 12. You, you see the validity of that? This is not unfounded. we got to understand the birth of Scripture before we can start understanding why in the world it is the most carefully documented writing ever in the history of the writings of antiquity. They venerated the Scripture. Their esteem was so high that it led to the perpetuation by God's providence using these men to keep it untainted for us today. And that's as much an exercise of faith as believing that when you were plunged in the waters of baptism that your sins were forgiven by the blood of Christ. Go ahead and advance to the songs if you can back there, so I don't flip through them all. But... And that's what we want to invite you to do this afternoon. You've got to have faith. When it all comes down to it, we're going to see throughout these lessons, and hopefully I convey it in such a way that is helpful and not confusing or such, because there's so much information available to us. You're going to see mountains of evidence compared to molehills for other documents. But at the end of the day, do you have faith in God? And there's plenty of people that see how carefully preserved this text is, how accurate it is to a thousandth of its content. There, there is complete accuracy throughout these documents. You can't say that for even a fraction of of the writings of antiquity, and they still don't believe it's the Word of God. They don't believe it. Still comes down to faith. Do you believe that Jesus, raised in Nazareth, born of a virgin, had a carpenter as a father, that He was the Son of God? you believe the miracles that we see written in Scripture? Do you believe that He was killed by His own countrymen? And on the third day, gained victory over death and the resurrection. He said, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. He is the Son of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that right now He's at the right hand of the throne of God and He is ruling in His kingdom? Do you believe that this is His Word? And He said in John 12, 48, My words that I've spoken will judge you in that day. you believe that? Do you believe that as Jesus told the disciples to preach the gospel to every creature that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Do you believe that? If you do, act on it. We can assist you with that this day. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.